This morning we move into the fourth week of a five-week teaching series that we are beginning 2024 with entitled, How We Change. Beginning of the year is a time when we often think about change, make resolutions, and it's been a way we've wanted to look at Acts chapter 9 as an example of how to approach a new year and the lives that we are called to live. Today marks a little bit of a turning point in this series. For the first three weeks we've looked at the first 19 verses of Acts chapter 9 and we've really just talked about two people. Uh, Saul who God encounters on the road to Damascus and uh, begins to invade and change Saul's life in uh, so many different ways. But also Ananias, this Christian in Damascus who is sent to Saul. Today we start to see that the action begins moving out. And that the, what God's doing in Saul's life and in Ananias now starts impacting other people. But I hope that you've noticed, if you've been here at Covenant for a little while, I hope you might have noticed a pattern in this uh, first three weeks of the series, which is when we talk as a church about how to live out our vision statement, encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play, we don't think that we become that kind of church, that we become those kinds of people through just having uh, aspirational statements. But that as human beings, how we live and how we can uh, live in intentional ways is through the creation of habits, the creation of actions. And we talk about that there are three habits that for years we've been talking about here at Covenant. Habits of solitude, community, and service. Three legs of a three-legged stool. All of us called to build the habits uh, here. And we say that these aren't just covenant habits, but we see these habits laced throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I hope you've maybe caught traces of this in the first three weeks of the series. We began in week one by asking you to see that God is the agent of change and so to open yourself up to a conversation with God using the examine and other tools. How does God want you to start this year? Having a conversation with God, solitude. How it is that we uh, are to gain clarity of what the new year holds, of what God might be stirring up or doing. That often other people have clarity about us and our calls before we do ourselves. We see this with Ananias and Saul. Community. Who are you talking with? Discerning the year ahead with. We all need that. And third and finally, last week we talked about how God is a missional God, a sending God. Sends Ananias to Saul to restore his sight so that Saul can then be sent out to impact the lives of others, to lead a life of purpose, to serve the needs of those around us. We ask you, who's God sending you to? Service, solitude, community, service. And those habits, as we do here at Covenant, are going to continue to be things we're going to invite you to think about when it comes to change this week. So today, as I said, the, the text starts moving outward and including more folks. And so we're going to read from uh, where we left off last week, the second half of verse nine, uh, 19 through verse 25. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoke this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are or how we gather here today, that we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So again, in this kind of turning point in this series, we see the action expanding to include more people than just Saul and Ananias. But I want us to take a second as we're moving into this, kind of moving towards the end of this series, to just assess what we've seen so far. What we've seen from verse 1 till now. Because there's a lot that's changed, but there's also certain things that haven't changed. And so actually, when we talk about what changes, I want us to take just a few minutes, and I don't know, quite know in the series where this fit in, but it has to be named, is that I also want us to take a few seconds to pay attention to what doesn't change about Saul from verse 1 till now. Because knowing what doesn't change, in many ways, is as important as knowing what does change. Knowing that God, there's things in your life that God doesn't want to change are just as important sometimes as knowing what God does want to change. So here's a list of some things, just so that our brains are working on it. Uh, the first thing that I noticed that does not change about Saul is his passion for faith, right? I mean, when we met him in verse 1, he's uh, rounding up Christians, he's arresting them, he's doing so out of this fervor for his beliefs and what he thinks. But what we notice here in the verses we just read is that that passion isn't gone, right? It, if you look down at the passage that we just read, it says, immediately he goes into the synagogue. He doesn't wait for like four days to kind of read up on kind of what this is or maybe what he, he said he immediately goes into the synagogue. And he didn't learn the whole church culture thing that we don't do open conflict because that's somehow wrong. So we smile at each other and then we talk about one another behind their backs. That's the healthy way that we do it. <laughs> Saul's not a conflict avoider. He just walks straight in. Passionate about what he believes and seeking to witness about it to other people. Doesn't change from verse 1 till now. It's not going to change for the rest of his life. God doesn't want that to change. Number two, he's a natural leader, isn't he? I mean, to be a Pharisee, you are a, a leader among leaders. He is recognized for his leadership. I find it interesting in this passage that when it says in the last verse we read, he's lowered in a basket out of the walls of Jerusalem. If you look, of Damascus, if you look there, it says his disciples do it. It's fascinating. The, the Christians in Damascus have been Christians longer than Saul. And yet something in him is wired that people follow him. And he already has people who are calling him a teacher. And he has folks who are listening to his teaching. They're his disciples. Doesn't change. Doesn't change for the rest of his life. And lastly, just this real quick, he's a scholar. I love that when he goes into the synagogues, it's there. It doesn't say he kind of talks about Jesus the Messiah. If you look in the passage we just read, it says he proves to them Jesus the Messiah. Which if you've read Romans, you're like, yep, that's the guy. That's, that's the Apostle Paul, right? It's like he's not going, hey, I, I just want to suggest something that you could maybe just think about in your own life and see if it kind of goes into your worldview. He is proving to them. Because he's a scholar, he understands the prophets, he understands the Psalms, he understands the Old Testament scriptures. He's talking about this is how Jesus is the Messiah, is the Savior of the world. And these things don't change. And I want to name this because there are ways we are wired, that Saul is wired, that you are wired, that I am wired, that God doesn't want to change because they are necessary. God made you in certain ways to live the life of impact you're supposed to have to impact the world around you where you live, work, and play. 
And as we read about from the very beginning, Saul is being called to be one who's to go to the Gentiles. He is going to plant churches around the known Roman Empire at the time. He is going to write letters that still today in the world, billions of people 2,000 years later are having their lives changed and transformed because of who Saul was and the clarity and the scholarship and the faith and the passion with which he wrote. God doesn't want to change any of that. John Ortberg is an author and a speaker who says that when we think about how God wants to change our life, he says that there's this kind of weird tension we sit in, that there are going to be things that God wants to reshape about our lives, but there's deep down core stuff of how we're made that God actually doesn't want to change. He says that there's going to be that you, and this is a funny phrase that he uses, but it's great. He says that you actually are going to become you -ier. You're actually, as you live more and more in faith, are going to have parts of it that just naturally align with who you are. And it's different from everyone else. Saul's call was different than Ananias's. And it wasn't that Ananias is supposed to become like Saul, or Saul's supposed to become like Ananias. Saul is, becomes, in some ways, different, but he's also, to use John Ortberg's paradigm, he kind of becomes Saulier, doesn't he? I mean, if you, you can read the Apostle Paul and what's happening right here. How does God not want to rewire you? When I was uh, in seminary, my first job, as some of you know, was working with college students, uh, undergraduate students uh, at a church in Atlanta, uh, mostly working with students from Georgia Tech. And, um, and as the ministry was growing, one of the most important people in my life was a teacher at my seminary, a man named Daryl Guter. Uh, and Daryl Guter was a missiologist, uh, and he was someone that I encountered when I was in my early days of seminary. Because as many of you know, I didn't have a traditional path to seminary. I actually hadn't been a Christian very long before I went to seminary, which is a whole different story. But as I was there, I just didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't have the same background. I didn't have the same experiences. I didn't have the same worldview. And I really, after a month, was preparing to drop out. I was like, I just, I'm not supposed to do this. This is, I've completely misread this of what I'm supposed to do. And Dr. Guter was the first person that I encountered that he started going, no, there's purpose in your story. Yes, it's different than other people, but God is going to use that, made a purpose. And he started mentoring me. And part of how he did that was he started inviting me to his home every Wednesday morning for breakfast. We had the same breakfast. Uh, he and his wife, Judy, uh, would make breakfast. I'd walk from my apartment on campus and we'd have toast and blackberry jam and tea. Every, every Wednesday morning, it was the same thing, right? For two and a half years. And we would talk about life. He was the first person that really prayed with me. Uh, we talked about ministry and this kind of growing college ministry. He guided me and asked questions about it. So I was stunned one Wednesday morning when I walked into his house and we had our blackberry jam and we had our toast and we had our tea and we were talking. And he said, hey, I want you to know something. I want you to know that it's coming out public in a few days and I want you to hear from me first that I've accepted a new job at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I looked at him I'm like, well, that's going to be a long commute. Um, <laughs> like, are you going to be able to get up there and back for Wednesday mornings uh, to, for us to have breakfast and to talk? And he said, no, no, we're actually moving physically to New Jersey for this. And it was like, what an amazingly selfish decision. <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know it was an option that you could leave. I did, no one had informed me of that. I can graduate from school and leave, but you can't leave. Who's going to mentor me? Who's going to get the Blackberry Jam? How's that going to happen? What about the tea? What's going to happen on Wednesday mornings as we go forward? And I said, well, why would you go and, and, and do that? And he said, well, because there's this unique opportunity. The unique opportunity I have is Princeton's not just going to help me teach future pastors, but they've actually invited me to start the first PhD program in the country on missional theology. 
what we talked about last week, how the American church had become too worried about attracting people and growing itself, but that the New Testament church is a sending church, a missional church. Our job is to equip you to go out where you live, work, and play, right? And he said, I'm going to start the first PhD program. And it occurred to me in the moment, I'm like, oh, what if I'm supposed to be in that program? And I don't know. And every sermon I've seen, people have laughed when I've talked about this. I don't know what that says about me. And when I talk about doing a PhD program, people are like, that's funny. <laughs> Turns out if you laugh, you're correct, right? Because I said, well, what does it take to get into a PhD program in missional theology? He said, okay, well, I was hoping we could talk about this. And there's actually several different requirements. The first requirement is a language requirement. And I said, well, I'm good at language. I talk a lot. Uh, and he goes, no, no, no. Uh, it's translating text. And so there's four languages you need to be proficient in translating. Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and German. There were other requirements he named afterwards. I have no idea what they were. I just kind of <laughs> glazed over at that point. It's like, well, I'm not doing that. And before you're sitting there going like, no, you're smart, you can do that, or whatever. It's like, no, it's not, it's not a question of ability. Or It was like to take the years to learn Latin and theological German and to imagine doing that instead of working with college students. No, thank you. I am not wired in that way. That is not me becoming me-ear. You are to become you-ear. Saul becomes Saul-ear. And so I just want you to think about while God's changing things in the year ahead, there's also really important ways that you are uniquely put together that God wants to use that, not change it. But it would be a weird series talking about how we change if we just talk about what doesn't change. So while you're thinking about that, this is where I want us to end today. I want us to make a second list of what has changed since verse 1. Because there's a lot about Saul that's changed since we first encountered him in the series. Again, not an exhaustive list, but a few things. Number one, his framework for faith. We said his passion for faith is the same. His framework for faith has changed, right? In Acts 7, when we first encounter him, he kills and, and, and organizes the murdering of Stephen for saying that Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the prophets. He's now saying in what we just read, he's proving to them Jesus is the Messiah, right? which does make it that I imagine a somewhat awkward conversation when he and Stephen encountered each other in heaven, right? <laughs> Where Stephen's looking, I'm going, I, I was right. And Saul's like, yeah, I'm sorry about that, man. I got that one wrong. But it takes for anybody, think about this seriously, it takes an amazing humility and faith and strength to have your framework for how you see the world rewired as an adult. To realize that what you were seeing things may not be right. And Saul is rewired. His framework has changed for how to think about faith in, in, a, in a number of verses. Number two, he has a new community. It says in the passage, if you look down there, it says that he spent time with the disciples in Damascus. He starts spending some time with new people. That might be one of the things that God might be leading you to do. Who are the people that you're investing time in? Who are the people investing time in you? Are they the right people for your growth? Or number three, and this is really interesting. He goes in a very short amount of time from being the hunter to the hunted. He goes from being one who's going to round up Christians to being lowered over the walls of Damascus in a basket because now people want to kill him. It's an astonishing loss of power that he has in few verses. Now, here's what I want you to think about today. And here's what I'm going to invite you as we continue with this idea of change in the new year. Is I want us to keep this framework up for just a second. Because I want you to notice something about change. And it's not just in these examples. It's in every part of your life to change. Is that there's something that's really important about a kind of 
way that we change. And the way that we change is this. Change is not always about something new happening. In every bit of change, you also have to let something go that's old. Does that make sense? There's a letting go as well as a picking up. There's a loss of something as as well as the gaining of something. Think about it here. His framework for faith, he doesn't just incorporate Jesus in the way he was before. He has to relinquish old ways that he had seen things before and to lay that down now and start walking in a new direction. Change isn't just incorporating something new. It's letting go of something old. Or what about in community? He lets go of spending so much time in certain relationships in order to spend time. Time is a finite thing. And sometimes you might have to start changing how you do that. There's a letting go as well as a picking up. And from hunter to hunted, think about this. Think about, it's hard for us to imagine what a Pharisee is in the world today. They were, they were rock stars. They were scholars. They were leaders. Saul, when we encounter in verse 1, is the kind of person, as he's walking down the street, the Jewish parents could look at their kids and go, if you work really hard someday, you might be able to be like him. And he has to give that up in order to embrace the thing God wants. We spend, think about how much time we spend on just social media. Think about how much time we spend like crafting what pictures we put on and which ones don't. Crafting what experiences of vacation we put online and which ones we don't. Think about in our year-end letters, what things we talk about our children doing and what are the things we edit out. We spend an inordinate amount of time trying to cultivate a sense of who we are so that other people see us with respect, with admiration, maybe with a little jealousy, if we're being really honest. And Saul walks away from that before he can pick up the new thing that God wants him to do. In every bit of change, there has to be a letting go as well as a picking up. And so here's the question I just want you to sit with today. As you look at 2024, what is God calling you away from? What is God calling you to lay down? What is God inviting you to simplify? What is God inviting you to reconsider? For change to be real, we have to be willing to understand, as we see in the imagery of baptism, there's a dying to an old self and a rising to new. God calls us away from things as much as God calls us to things. What is God causing you, calling you to lay down? See, culturally, we don't think this way. Culturally, we just pick up more. We accomplish more. We do more. Andy Root spoke about this in our foundation lecture series uh, last weekend. He talked about how, and this is not, and I want you to hear me, because a lot of you work in technology, which is great. And we're thankful for that. Um, seriously, again, not trying to cause laughter. Um, he made fun of technology, and he thought he could get a PhD. <laughs> not, this is not an anti-technology thing. But Andy Root was talking about how technology is sold to people with the idea that it's going to create far more margin in our lives, right? What used to take me a whole day, I can now do in, in 20 minutes. It used to take me, I used to have to like dictate a letter and then figure out someone's address and put a stamp on it and put it in the mail. It'd take like three days to get there. Then I'd wait for a reply and wonder if the post office. Now I just like in 20 seconds send a text and the deal's done. Contact's made. And so what Andy Root was saying is you would think that it's like, oh my gosh, we are the generation that has more free time, more margin. We're more carefree. We have just kind of more downtime. We're more relaxed 
than ever before because we can do things in a very short amount of time. But that's not how human beings work. The opposite has actually happened culturally where it was like, oh, 20 years ago, I could do things in a year that now I can do in a day. Imagine what I can do in a year. I am gonna produce more, I'm gonna create more, we're gonna earn more, there's gonna be no list of things that we can't sign our children up to do so that we are running 100 miles an hour and they are running 100 miles an hour and everybody's seeing how fast we can go until we collapse under the stress because life is meant to be lived this way. And right when I think we're running fast enough, I see online about the accomplishment that other parents' kids are doing and now what that means is we're gonna run faster. Psychologists and sociologists, and this is important. If you think about it, if you can relate to this, they say that there's something really interesting bubbling up in society. And what's interesting is, is that we are producing more and more stuff. We are busier than we've ever been before. And yet we're more stressed out and anxious about what we're not doing than generations previous to us. And we also, while we're busy all the time and constantly have to-do lists that are being worked, We don't feel like we're doing anything particularly well. That is not flourishing. When God leads us to change, there's a question of what are we supposed to lay down as well as what we're supposed to pick up. What's God calling you from is just as important of a question as what's God calling you to. I'll end with this. When I shared about going and getting a PhD and God not calling me for that, uh, I said it was because I was working in college ministry. I don't work in college ministry anymore. That's not what I do. That season came to an end. Not because of anything bad. I loved what I did. But here's the thing. When I first started working with college students, I was like 25 years old. My wife and I were doing this together. It was great. But here's the thing about college students. When they write you and say, do you want to grab coffee at 9.30 or 10? That's not in the morning. <laughs> That's PM. And when I was 25, it was like, yeah, what's better on a Wednesday night than getting jacked up on caffeine at 10 PM, being up till one in the morning wired, and then like, just because you can sleep in the next morning. Works great. I loved it. I loved it. But then life moves on. We had a baby. One of the great miracles of our life, the gift of children, the gift of our first child, and at the time, we were like, our life's just going to keep going. The baby will come with us. Do what we do. The thing is, <laughs> it doesn't work very well to jack, get jacked up on caffeine at 10 o'clock at night on a Wednesday and stay up till 1 in the morning when there's a sleep schedule you're trying to get a baby on and a feeding schedule that you're trying to get a baby on. It doesn't work quite as well when a Saturday working with college students is you're going to go to a Georgia Tech football game and you go to a tailgate beforehand and you'll hang out maybe afterwards and you'll just see. It's like, I'll get home when I get home. It doesn't work as well. Not because of bad things, but because it's time to live into something new. And so I had a clarity very early on before my job changed that God was releasing me from the way I had been doing things before. I was being called away from something. Now, I didn't leave the church I was at. But what happened was is that I got a different job because of the growth in the ministry. I started overseeing the ministry. I started teaching more of the students, doing more strategic leadership. But we hired another person named Chris 
And Chris was just starting a seminary, and Chris was single, and Chris was 24, and Chris would go out on a Wednesday night and go, I can't believe I get paid to have coffee with college students until like one in the morning. Isn't this the greatest job ever? I'm like, I remember when I felt that way. I don't anymore. (laughs) Don't call me after 10, because I like to go to bed. But before I knew the new thing, we had to acknowledge that something good had come to a close. God was saying, it's time to lay that down now. And so I ask you just to think as we close. To this week, what would it mean to have a conversation with God? What would it mean to talk to some people in community and get some perspective on the year ahead? Not about how can I add two more things to my already overloaded to-do list, but maybe, just maybe, what am I called to lay down? What am I called to stop doing at this moment? Because sometimes you have to learn that God's calling you to say no to certain things before you can learn to say yes to new things. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your leading and your guiding as to what it means to be your called people. Help us to imagine your call to change in these days by asking what it's time for us to let go of, what you're inviting us to lay down in order to say yes later on to something new. We pray for your leading and your wisdom and your courage to follow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.